Good morning, friends. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Alyssa. I'm one of the pastors here. Paul Wesley Chilko, a Wesleyan scholar, says one of the most painful aspects of the history of the church is that much of the memory of women, stories about the lives, faith, and ministry of women, has been lost. Women who have always represented the vast majority of the Christian community down through the ages have been have not been permitted to have a voice and thereby shape our memory. The women who we highlight in scripture can give us a particular worldview of the role of women both throughout history and for us today. Today, this Mother's Day Sunday, we begin a new four-week series called Hidden Figures, highlighting women leaders in scripture. Many times we think of the women in scripture like Hannah, Bathsheba, Ruth, Mary, Sarah, or Eve, mothers of great men and definitely used by God, but most of their stories are about motherhood or submission. But there are also hidden figures in scripture, women who are influential, leading, prophesying, judging, not because there are no men around to do it, but because they are called by God and gifted and obedient to God. These women, alongside the ones we normally highlight, can give us a full picture of the role of women in the Bible, in our churches and in our world. I want to highlight women in scripture whose voices have been allowed to break through, albeit not as fully as other men's voices in scripture, but even though their stories are shared, they have been, the volume has been turned down. We don't get the full experience of these women's impact on the community of God's people, but nevertheless, we read, we study, and we listen. We hear their stories. Some of us, myself included, sometimes question whether we are being gypped when we get a female leader. We wonder if maybe there just wasn't a man available. Sometimes our, mind, our minds fill with doubt that a female could lead as well as a man. And we have seen this in the news in recent history. In the last few presidential elections with uh, women as frontrunners, the country has had a collective conversation of whether a woman could do the job as well as a man. And we've come to the conclusion that we are not ready for a female leader for whatever reason. But the truth is, it's never just one person who leads us through anything. There are always multiple voices, regardless of who is the face of leadership. And God equips each of us uniquely to support the full mission of liberation for God's people, each and every one of us. 
And that's the story we're going to hear today. So this series is not necessary because we want to show off women or prove why women are better than men or because we believe women have this special relationship with God and therefore should be lifted up. No, this series, this conversation is necessary for just the opposite reasons. Women are not better than men, nor are men better than women. Both men and women have special relationships with God that are used for the kingdom. And if we silence one side of the story, if we mute the voices of the women, we miss out on the fullness of what God is doing. And therefore, we can never participate fully in the life of the kingdom. And that's what we all want. We want to be able to participate fully in the kingdom of God. And so in this season, right now, where we are as a church, as a country, as a world, in this season where we are um, tired and exhausted, in this season where we're figuring out a new normal, a new way of being, we present this series as kind of a a way to approach um, our lives, uh, the lives of the people around us, how we view our leaders, and how we view ourselves and what God is calling us to do. So I'm hopeful that these women that we hear about over the next four weeks will inspire us in our own call that God has given to us. An article on reading the Bible as women in one of my commentaries, it states that perhaps the full integration of women into biblical interpretation will occur only when it is no longer necessary to publish special studies about women. No longer necessary to include paragraphs and sections about women in major studies and commentaries. Because the consideration of women will have been so well included that it is no longer meaningful to single us out for attention. But such a time remains in the future. And this is not only happening in the church or in biblical interpretation. This is happening in all of our society. There are special organizations for women to connect and empower one another because women in those arenas are the exception. Companies have special trainings for women, special inclusion workshops, not just around gender, but gender is a part. In the compilation of scripture and also in the world today, the voices and contributions of women are far more the exception than the rule. But if women leaders can be an exception, why can't they be a part? of the rule. The fact that these women's stories in scripture, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, Lydia, and others have remained through centuries of male-dominated society and institutions, shed light onto God's desire for all people to be witnesses, evangelists, leaders of God's people. Each of these women have different gifts have different stories, 
but each of them is used by God to influence and lead their communities toward God. So over the next four weeks, we are going to look at four hidden figures, four women, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Lydia. Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, and Lydia are influential women, clever, divinely inspired, courageous, empathic, obedient, worshipful women who have been able to lead God's people with the gifts God has given them. And when we read scripture in these stories through the empowered, liberated lens of the gospel of Jesus that emphasizes reliance on the Holy Spirit, we remember that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, and slave nor free. So for this series, for this week and the next three weeks, I want to invite you to hear these stories. Hear them like they matter. Hear them like they can change your worldview. Hear them like God would hear them. And then ask God what God would like you to do about it. I'll be teaching on these four women from scripture. And then each week, we'll also hear from others about the role and influence of women in their lives. For three weeks of this series, I've asked three of my colleagues who are men to share about a female leader who has influenced them. And then one of these weeks, we'll have a special panel of women who are leaders in the workplace from Central City. One in medicine, one in finance, one in the nonprofit world, and one in engineering. And I hope that the stories of all of these women inspire you to live your life with a greater sense of God's call, to live your life with divine inspiration, to live your life open to what God would have for you, no matter your status, no matter your gender, no matter your current position. You were created by God to live for God. So as you hear these stories, try to find yourself in them. Try to find the truth about God in them. One thing to note before we get started, reading in the Old Testament is one of my favorite things. There's so much there, so many obscure stories, so many heroes and villains, and so much that without being Jewish, without living in Israel or studying multiple commentaries and authors, studying anthropology and sociology and knowing all of these different ins and outs of, of worship and other religions and everything that was going on in that region, it's hard to get a full sense of everything that's actually happening in scripture. But it is so fun, for me at least, to dig into all of those things, even just for one obscure passage. One of the things that I knew, but realized at a deeper level for this series, um, especially reading about women in the Old Testament, is that the Hebrew tradition is so full. The, the Hebrew Bible, similar to our Old Testament, is just a piece of the puzzle, just the beginning of the story. There is a book in the Jewish faith called the Talmud. The Talmud is a collection of um, oral history, commentary, insight into the Hebrew Bible. You read them 
alongside each other. When you read just the Hebrew Bible, you miss out on a lot of the tradition and insight that has been passed down for centuries from rabbi to rabbi, family to family. So when I first looked at the Christian Old Testament for Miriam, I was a little disappointed. I was a little sad. There isn't much to go on. There's not, a, there's not just one full encompassing story about this wonderful woman. But I had already chosen Miriam as one of the four leaders that I would focus on in this series. And so it was a little too late to find a new one. So I decided to dig in anyway. And I knew that God would provide something about this woman. What I realized was that I didn't recognize Miriam as a leader necessarily from our Christian Old Testament but from tradition that I think had seeped out from the Jewish faith and stories uh, and, and legends about this woman from the Jewish faith. There is so much that we know and think of about Miriam that is not necessarily in our Christian Old Testament, but that it's a huge part of our faith through Judaism. The story of Miriam takes us throughout the Exodus story. There's not just one place where her story is told. Rather, she is moving and working alongside Moses and Aaron and even before them throughout the rescue and liberation of God's people from Egypt. So what is Miriam's story? We don't really know. We have pieces and parts here and there. We know she was at the Exodus and sang. We know she questioned Moses and got leprosy. And we know she died and was buried. The Hebrew Midrash or commentaries, the, the Talmud that, that you read alongside the Hebrew Bible, they give us a bigger picture of who she was. And I found some of, of these stories, some of these commentaries from sages throughout the ages. And so I want to tell you the story of Miriam. Miriam was born to Hebrew parents in Egypt during the time of Hebrew slavery. Her parents weren't just Hebrew, but they were from the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe. Her father, Amram, was a leader, influencer among the Hebrews. And her mother, Jochebed, was a well-known and talented midwife for the Hebrew women. At a very young age, probably around four, Miriam began working with her mother as a midwife as well. Jochebed and Miriam also went by their Egyptian names, Shipra and Pua. Miriam's name was Pua. Pua can refer to cooing and rocking a baby, but it can also be translated as stood up to. Pharaoh in scripture in the book of Exodus commands the midwives to kill the baby boys who are born to Hebrew women. But these midwives, Shipra and Pua, as scripture says, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. In Jewish tradition, Pua speaks out to Pharaoh saying, Woe to you on the day of judgment, when God will come to demand punishment of you. Already at a young age, and against the king of Egypt no less, Miriam is speaking out against 
and prophesying about the judgment to come from God. Because of the decree from the king, however, Amram, Miriam's mother, or Miriam's dad, decided that he would divorce his wife so that they would not have any more baby boys. Because of Amram's influence among the people, other men heard about this and said, that sounds like a good idea. And so they also divorced their wives. Miriam is said to have stood up to her father, again, from a young age, at a young age, saying that he is not only losing out on having baby boys, but also on having girls, and that this will be the ruin of the Hebrew people. So because Miriam stood up to her father and because of her prophecy against his actions, Amram remarried his wife and they had Moses, Exodus chapter 2. So without God's divine inspiration and Miriam's intervention, Moses, the one born to set his people free, would not have been born. Miriam then, as we know, oversees her baby brother as he is set into the water. Scripture says she stood to see what would happen to him. Jewish sages see this as one more time that Miriam is standing up for her people, taking careful watch over the one who would someday save them. Then Miriam petitioned to have Moses a part of their family a little longer by working out a deal with the Pharaoh's daughter who has now adopted Moses. We meet Miriam again years later as Miriam is called to lead the people in a song of praise after they walk through the sea on dry ground, Exodus 15. This is a part of the story where I want to pause. I want to pause because I shared earlier that there are many women in scripture, but the women's voices and their stories have been muted or ignored completely. And here is just one example. Biblical scholarship for decades now has consistently identified this as a redaction of Miriam's story. Exodus 15.1 says that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. It then goes on for 18 verses, a beautiful song glorifying God for his great and mighty deeds for the people of Israel. Exodus 15 verses 20 through 21 then say, Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, a tambourine, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Let me explain a little more. In ancient cultures, the men would go out to battle, and when they returned, the women would join in song and dance, a song and dance for victory to the men and to God about the battle and praising God for his provision and safety going before them in this war. The writers of Exodus have attributed the majority of this song to Moses when it was most likely the song that Miriam would have led the women in singing. They have cut off her voice. 
after the song of Moses, they do mention the prophet Miriam and share her song, which is also the first line of Moses's song, Exodus 15:1. She leads the women in the song of freedom and hope and trust and in God. So you know how our hymnal or our songs sometimes, uh, most of the hymns are titled the same as the first line of the song, right? Or another example from classic literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh. In ancient times, it was known as he who saw everything because that's how it starts out. That's the first line of the epic. Exodus 15.1 tells us that this is the title to the song. So we come to Exodus 15.21 and it's most likely just stating which song Miriam led the dancers in. It was the sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted song. You know, the horse and its riders hurled into the sea. Yeah, let's sing that together. Experts in biblical poetry have argued for decades that the song of the sea, Exodus chapter 1, 15 verses 1 through 18, should be attributed to Miriam, not Moses. However, biblical scholars have, have come to this agreement that they believe that it was easier to ascribe this song to Moses, the great leader of the Exodus, than to figure out how to explain Miriam's association with everything. One Hebrew Bible professor writes, these points about the title of the song and, and others that she makes, as well as the existence of a Dead Sea Scroll fragment attributing an extended song to Miriam, these suggest that the Song of the Sea should really be attributed to Miriam. Indeed, and hear this now, the very presence of the beginning or the title of Miriam's song in this text indicates that the tradition of her authorship was so powerful that it could not be completely edited out, even as editors or redactors associated the, the entire poem with Moses to heighten his apotheosis. Her author's, authorship was so powerful that it could not be completely edited out. God, through the Holy Spirit in the Holy Scripture, would not let her voice be silenced. It might be turned down because of us who are working with God, but it will not be completely silenced. So even though Miriam's role is downplayed in Exodus 15, we learn here that she is a prophet. And really, this is saying something. Being a prophet is a big deal. Being a prophet meant she actually did have some sort of leadership capacity among the people that is not necessarily shared with us in this text. So we take it. We take it that we know that she is a prophet and we know in our minds and our hearts that she played a significant role in leading God's people to liberation and freedom in this story. So we look to Miriam as one who stands up to the men in her life. She stands up for family values, for not abandoning the women just because something is inconvenient or, or scary. She teaches us to trust that God is our protector, that God has a purpose for us even in this season. 
We don't back down or give up on our values just because something of this world gets in the way. Miriam in scripture has one last short story about her. It's in Numbers chapter 12. I was debating on whether to tell this story because it doesn't shine that great of a light on her. But the story that Jewish sages have passed down through history brings a fuller picture to her heart, to her call, and to her leadership of the people even through this story. So in Numbers 12, we have a scene that Miriam came to her brother Aaron, the, one of the priests, because she is concerned about her brother Moses. The Midrash, the, the commentary, shares that Moses had decided to divorce his wife because he desired to devote all of his time and his life to God. He didn't have time to, to have a wife right now. Miriam was concerned about this, and so she came to her brother, not to Moses, to share her concern. Some say, some uh, Midrash, some, some sages say that she was concerned for Zipporah, her sister-in-law, Moses' wife. And some say she was concerned for how other men would then follow Moses' example and the Hebrew people would be effective, affected negatively. Does this, does this draw you back to anything? It's certainly in line with her values uh, from her childhood. Some also say that she is asking in this, in this scene that she's like, well, if God told Moses to do this, would God want her and Aaron as also leaders to be doing this as well as, as leaders of God's people? So there's these three different uh, interpretations of this scene. Now, we don't know her intention or the full story because, again, well, it's not here but a couple things that are in this passage that I want to point out. God is disappointed, upset with Miriam, and gives her a skin disease, but God does not stay mad at her. God does not wipe her off the face of the planet because, because he was upset with her, because she was dishonoring Moses and therefore God. The fact that Miriam was even having this conversation with Moses and Aaron shows her level of leadership and the ability to have this conversation with the others. I also want to point out that at the end of this story, the people of Israel respected and viewed Miriam as so much a leader of their community that they could not leave the camp without her. So the people wait for her to be cured. She had to wait outside the camp for seven days, and they wait for her to be cured before continuing their journey to their next camp. Numbers 12, 15 says it this way. The people did not move on till she was brought back. Now, Miriam is not mentioned again until we hear of her death. And her death, as opposed to Aaron and Moses' death, is just one short verse, almost as an aside. The end of Numbers chapter 20, verse 1, it says, There Miriam died and was buried. There she died and she was buried. Aaron gets a full eight verses, Numbers 20, verses 22 through 29. Moses gets a warning about his death, time, time to bless the tribes, and a full chapter, 12 verses, about his actual death and burial, Deuteronomy 32 um, through 34. 
But not only do the Hebrew people in the desert recognize the influence of Miriam, but the prophet Micah hundreds of years later recalls in Micah 6 verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. I also want to point out that in in genealogies in the book of Chronicles, there's a list of the sons of Levi. And Levi's sons all had sons. But it does mention that, you know, sons of so-and-so are so-and-so. But when it gets to Amram, it says, the children of Amram are Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Miriam throughout Jewish history is recognized as a leader just as much as Aaron with this great leader, Moses. So let me tell you about Miriam. Miriam is a bold, courageous, discerning, forward-thinking, assertive prophet who loved and cared for the people of God. A woman who, even through bitterness and sadness, she led the people in justice and in righteousness, and in song and in praise to God. A woman who, through her story, was minimized and muted. She broke through so that the story of God in her life would be told for thousands of years. A woman who stood up to the the men around her, Pharaoh, her father, Moses. A woman who only God alone could stop in her tracks. This is a true leader, protecting and serving God's name and God's people. So when we talk about the role of women in the Bible and throughout history and today, This is the role of women, to stand up to injustice, to speak out for God and for for God's people who cannot speak for themselves, and to lead God's people in worship. But this is not just the role of women. This is the role of every single person who is called and loved by God. So as we hear this story, as we hear the depth and the fullness of Miriam's story, we hear what it means to let God live in and through us. And so I pray that each of us who are listening, women and men, adults and children, that each of us can find the courage and the boldness to know who we are and to stand up for those around us just as Miriam did. Today, we also get to hear from Joe, one of the pastors at Central City, who is going to share about another bold, courageous, and influential woman. Here he is. So Alyssa asked me to share about a a woman who uh, is an inspiration to me. And um, there's really only one answer to that. Uh, Of course, it's Alyssa. But uh, she asked me specifically to share about a woman who uh, more of a historical or uh, 
a famous uh, a woman and, and one of the first people that came to my mind and I think she's been on my mind a little bit as a, as a source of conviction during this time was was Corey Ten Boom. I, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she uh, she helped write uh, she wrote her story out uh, with some help from some authors, uh, telling her story about um, during uh, World War II, she and her family housed um, resistance workers and uh, Jews from the Nazis. Um, she was eventually her family was eventually found out. They actually didn't find. Uh, the people they were hiding. Uh, but in her book, The Hiding Place, uh, she tells a story about how she and her family was arrested. Some of her family was released. Others died in prison, including her sister. And uh, it's a tragic story, but it's filled with an immense amount of faith and an immense amount of forgiveness. There's one story in particular. She told it years later. After, it happens after her book. She talked about how she was touring. She, she made it. Corey Ten Boom made it out. And uh, she survived. And she began to go. And she actually went back to Germany. She went to Germany. Uh, not back. She went to Germany to, uh, to communicate a, a message of forgiveness. Um, just that alone, you know, is a, a kind of courage that I just don't even know that I have. Um, but she went back to preach forgiveness as somebody who had spent time in a concentration camp. And she's, uh, she's preaching about God's forgiveness. And she, she would compare it to, um, you know, uh, uh, our sins are like being tossed in the ocean. She said she's, you know, she lives in, uh, from Holland. The ocean's always, you know, on, on, on the mind of people who live in Holland and as the water encroaches, um, and she says, it's like God takes our sin when we're forgiven and just throws it out to the ocean. She's preaching this. And, uh, and then uh, she says, after she preaches in, in, um, in Germany, uh, most people remain silent and very stoic. And this is just after the war and Germany's been defeated. And, um, but there's one guy in the crowd that comes up to her and she recognizes him immediately. And of course, he's one of the guards. One of the guards at the camp, at the jail, where, where she was forced to strip, uh, where she was forced to parade in front of him as he was working. And he came up to her and said, you know, hey, I was a guard at the same camp as you. And she's like, yeah, I remember. There's no way he would have remembered her, the thousands of people that he uh, saw. But she remembered him. And he said that since then, I've, I've given my life to Christ. I feel that God's forgiven me. And, and because she had just preached on forgiveness and the power of forgiveness, he's bold enough to ask her to forgive him. And she tells a story about how she didn't want to, how she didn't want to let it go, how, how dare him ask for forgiveness, how, as if that would bring her sister back, her family back, take, give those years back. But she couldn't forgive him. But he stood there with his hand out asking for it. And she's like, she told God, she's like, God, I can't forgive him. But what I can do is I can just lift my hand and shake his. And um, she does that. She's like, that's what I can do. And she does that. And something happens in that moment. And the Holy Spirit enables her to do what she couldn't do. And she experiences a feeling, you know, she experiences forgiveness for him in a, a supernatural way. The story of Corey Ten Boom and, and her life and her witness and the ways in which she has been, uh, she was courageous and uh, held on to faith in the worst of times has been 
um, a deep challenge for me and, and a huge inspiration. And I'm so grateful for her witness, for her leadership, for her speaking and for her writing. Um, uh, and, and I wish I would have had a chance to meet her.